been um, described, if not accused at times as a church as being Episcopalian, which I believe is a subtle reminder to our pastor each week that we like short sermons. Well, this week I'm going to be rather Baptist. It's the longest one I've written in some time. You're welcome. (laughs) And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What is a cup of cool water? What is this cup of cool water? Jesus describes here. I think, uh, historically speaking, this, this image is a, is a luxury. It is it's certainly the, the coldness is a luxury and also is a, is a gentle aid of comfort and even healing. The message translation, particularly in this uh, Matthew 10, I, I find to be wonderful. These are the words of Jesus This is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty. It is the smallest act of giving or receiving by which you become a true learner. A large work we've been called into, this work of welcome on the lips of Jesus. But don't be overwhelmed with it. It is good to start small. There's a story told by Thomas Merton of a monk who often received guests from the local community. Once, uh, this monk who had helped a family through a devastating time, a wealthy family, gave to this monk after a time of ministry, gave to this monk a most wonderful diamond. A diamond of incredible value and worth sat simply in the cell of the monk in the middle of the table in the corner of the small room. At another time, this monk was receiving an individual from the community dealing with the depths and the difficulty of life. And so this individual walked up to the uh, monastery, hiked in and to spend time with this particular monk who had a a, a calling, if you will, to give care and guidance and a listening ear to those struggling with life. And as this individual was was bearing the difficulty of what it meant to be alive in that time and space and and all the things uh, causing it hard to be a human, the individual came to a hard stop and noticed this most magnificent diamond. There in the grayest of cells, this rock reflecting light unlike anything the individual had ever seen before. And the individual commented on on the rock owned by the monk and the individual said, and the monk asked, well, do you like, do you like that diamond? And the individual said, of course, I've never seen anything like it. And so, of course, the monk said, then you should have it. The individual finished bearing his soul and left back for home in hand with the most precious rock. It was but a few days later when at the door, I told you I was Baptist today. (laughs) 
<clears throat> oh, irony. <laughs> when at the door, same individual return, wanting to return the rock to the monk who had given it. And the monk was surprised, saying, I thought you liked this diamond. You, you commented on it. Why are you giving it back? And the individual said to the monk, I want that which you have which allowed for you to give such to me so easily. A cup of cool water represents a luxury, great or small, and something that is of tremendous comfort. What is a cup of cool water that you have received and or you might be led to offer in our world? My paternal grandparents are from the central foothills of Texas. They were poor farmers. My papa was from Comanche and my grandmother, whom the town I grew up in lovingly knew as Sergeant Granny. She was loud, vulgar, tremendously fun. She was a poor farmer from pretty Texas. Uh, late in life, uh, they helped plant a Northridge Baptist Church off I-75 in Dallas, and I'm so grateful for their legacy of faith in my life. Similarly, um, my maternal grandparents were devout Roman Catholic. I'm grateful uh, for their influence on my life, of course. But I can't get my mind off this week of uh, my sergeant uh, granny. When I was about 10 years old, uh, my brothers and I uh, graduated to that sort of uh, um, important step for some, which is old enough to be able to mow the lawn, cut the grass, and tend for the yard. And so about that time, uh, my dad would take us over to Granny's house and, and drop us off. And I can remember so vividly my grandmother spent those years that she was alive, spent most of those years, more or less two decades, sitting in a wooden rocking chair in her garage in the swampy, disgusting heat of East Texas. Isn't it good to be in West Texas? where it's 107 and the wind blows and it's not that bad. Life is just too short to live east of Abilene. It, one thing you've probably picked up about me and you need to know about our family is the Maxwell family is as extroverted as a family could be. If you would now join me in prayer for my wife. <laughs> our first Christmas, she's like, why is everyone screaming at each other? I'm like, they're just talking. So my granny would just sit there in the, in the garage waiting for someone to walk by. But most of that time, as I remember, she spent on her phone, a corded pulse push button telephone. And we would go and cut the grass and she would scream at us. And I, and I wondered, I wondered, does she really want, does she really want us to, to take care of her yard or does she just want someone to boss around for an hour or so? That's what I thought earlier in my days. And I don't think that's untrue. However, it seemed what she really liked was when the grass was cut. And 
Listen, a 10-year-old cutting your grass, it's not that good. You could tell, like, poor farmer from pretty, she doesn't care about grass. What she wanted was afterwards for us to sit next to her in the swampy garage and to drink diet caffeine coke together and talk. She wanted to talk. And as vivid as all the memories I, I cherish are amongst them, Right there next to her wooden rocking chair it was this sort of rack that other people would put maybe old newspapers or, or magazines in. And I remember hers were filled with these old, tattered, very simple spiral notebooks. And those notebooks were filled with her awful, cursive handwriting. You know, I have terrible handwriting. I'm an extrovert. She's in, you know, Pete Scazzaro, evangelical mystic up in Queens, New York, says, you know, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. And I remember these spiral-bound notebooks filled with awful cursive handwriting. And in those notebooks were simply the name of an individual and their phone number, and maybe just the note from the last time she called them. She called people all the time. Later, moved away and went to college, and I am certain that I was the highest percent of the highest percent of the highest percent of college students in the world who received phone calls from their grandmother. I'd be like, Granny, I'm at, a, I'm at a fellowship. I'll have to call you back. And for those of you who don't understand this story, there was a day in which people actually used the phone to make phone calls. There was a day in which people would answer the phone when the phone rang. And in 2007, I convinced Allison Wynn to come home and to meet my family. And we met at a Mexican restaurant and we walked in and you can tell something was wrong. A large, dysfunctional, extroverted family pretending to be quiet and nice. <laughs> and my grandmother sat there, she didn't get up. And so I went to her chair and I bent over and gave her a hug and said, Granny, there's someone I would like for you to meet. And, and she turned and, and she faced and she just joyfully welcomed this distinguished guest by name into our family. And, and, and this was her version of a cup of cool water, a luxury. Those notebooks filled with names and phone numbers were her prayer list. Yeah. <clears throat> Several monastic traditions tell of a story of these, uh, the monastery during a high and holy season of worship, Lent or Advent or even Holy Week in which the monastery calls for a fast. And, and I would just encourage you, I believe in the literal practice of fasting. 
This, this is a way that we can continue to express our faith in a world of tremendous excess. Uh, fasting is a countercultural way that we might uh, connect with the, with the generosity that God has extended uh, to us, a way that we can get inside of our bodies and, and feel the incarnateness of this image of God. I, I believe in the words of Richard Foster, who, who advocates for fasting as a spiritual practice and also defines fasting as saying no... In a, in, a, in a most general sense, Foster defines fasting and celebration of discipline as saying no to self in order to say yes to that which is bigger, that which we call the spirit. And so this fasting can also uh, be metaphorical, not just uh, eating. But uh, several traditions tell a similar story of a monastic community in a sacred time of year calling for a fast. And similarly to the story before, in the middle of the fast... A knock on the door, one of the monks' cells, and there is some seeking guidance, seeking hope, seeking comfort, seeking a cup of cool water, who obviously had not had a good meal in a long time. And so on this occasion, this monk in the middle of fast uh, made a simple bowl of stew, and those visiting, including the monk, broke bread and fellowshiped together. Word in the monastery spread that um, uh, uh, brother so-and-so had broken fast and it had uh, offended even some of the young monks in the monastery such that uh, the young monks came to the abbot uh, questioning the appropriateness of, of such an act and the abbot explaining to the young monks that yes, this one who broke fast had broken the rule of man, but had celebrated the traditions of God. And this is a tension that we see in our text throughout. One story that has been on my heart and soul uh, this week, I think representing this, this incredible welcome on the lips of Jesus and also a dialoguing with the, the rule of man and the tradition and celebration of God's heart. And that is the story of Ruth. And I would encourage you this week, or maybe not this week, that we started a new month, this month, would you find time to read and receive the story of Ruth? Probably it was intended to be received, to be heard, to be read as a whole. So you, you just might find time this month to read through this story. Some scholars suggest this is among our oldest stories to ever be written down in our scriptures. Now, many believe that Job, that story of, of suffering, is in fact our oldest story and maybe is the first story to be actually written down in our scripture. But others contend that if not first, Ruth is not far behind Job in being our one of the oldest and first stories to be written down. Is isn't that interesting? Two of our oldest, most sacred stories is a story of suffering and a story of welcome. And if you have lived at all, yeah, sometimes it seems there's nothing more true in life than suffering. And then we receive this story of Ruth it just sits awkwardly even in our scripture. It's not in the judge's material and it's not in the king's material. It's in between. And if you have lived at all, 
you know so much of life is in this in-between. The Ruth is a story of courageous welcome. And I'll admit there are some uh, difficulty challenging aspects to this text that I don't think should just, just be quickly glossed over. Women are treated as, as property throughout the story. There is, are, is at least questions, if not stronger, of intimate partner violence. But the story at its heart is a story of courage. It's a story of courage. And I believe it takes courage to be true to these words of Jesus to welcome. It takes courage to be true to the words of Jesus to offer a simple luxury, to offer some sort of aid of comfort and healing, to offer a cup of cool water. Now, in recent days, the Baptist world at large has taken specific action to explicitly restrict women in ministry and congregations who welcome LGBTQ friends in their, in their community. Now, in my opinion, and, and you may disagree, in my opinion, these actions taken by larger Baptist organizations, in my opinion, are upholding the rule of man and missing on the tradition of celebrating God's heart. Now, this is not my opinion here. The Baptist Church in America actively supported the institution of slavery endorsing slave owners as church members and also complicit in the violence that upheld slavery in this country. And listen, I'm not bringing up this story because you were a part of the Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist Convention during that time and that you're not the reason why the Southern Baptist Church was in cahoots with slavery back during that time. I do bring up this story because it is a cautionary tale that reminds us that throughout Baptist history, for whatever reason, large organizations have seeked to differentiate between who is welcomed into the presence of Christ and who is not. And it takes courage, the courage of Ruth, the courage that I think is fully embodied in the one we call the Christ. It takes courage to offer a luxury, to offer a word of healing and comfort. It takes courage to welcome. Verse 42 in the NRSV as we received at least three times this morning says, truly I tell you, None of those who offer this welcome of Jesus will lose their reward. The message translation, I think, is better. Those who extend the welcome of Jesus, the message translation says this way, you won't lose out on a thing. But I like my translation better. <laughs> those who extend the welcome of Jesus won't lose out on a thing that matters. You might miss out on something 
But I don't believe that something ultimately matters. As we practice the welcome of Christ, we will not miss out on that which matters. What is a cold cup of water that you have received? What's a luxury and a comfort and an act of welcome that you might be led to extend today? And I'd like to share with you a story that I did not realize until the early service this morning, a story that I had not shared since my grandmother's funeral. And in December 2007, when Allison came with me to that famous now Mexican restaurant, and I bent over and hugged my granny, and I tried to introduce her And she so boldly wanted to extend a welcome to this new distinguished guest in our family. It didn't go well. The urgent granny called out, welcome Alice. (laughs) She wanted so badly to call you by name and welcome you in. And no one corrected her. To do so would be improper. Later in the meal, I was sitting to her right and looked over at her, and there on her left hand, right below her thumb, in awful, awful cursive handwriting, was the name Alice. She had written it down wanting to offer this welcome. And it was spelled wrong. And so we cherish, we do, we cherish our broken attempts to join in with the welcome of Christ. We cherish the imperfect welcome that we extend in this world, and as imperfect as they may be, we hold to hope and faith to the one who offers perfect welcome. Good and gracious God, hear these words, spelled wrong, broken and human. May they partner with your wisdom and your spirit for your glory. Amen. Amen.